sermon lesson is taken from Ephesians chapter 3. The text is up on the screen, and I would love to have you read it with me. Together, please. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Friends, God always blesses the reading and the hearing of the Word. New York City is home to Radio City Music Hall. John D. Rockefeller put that complex together in 1933. It is the largest indoor theater in the world. It seats 6,000 people. Its motif is really Art Deco, fascinating modern place. And for 80 years, they have put on the Radio City Christmas Spectacular. It is a great show. Starts about Thanksgiving, runs through Christmas, and they do multiple shows every day. When you sit in that darkened theater, gigantic place, suddenly out of the walls come two organ consoles, large organ consoles. Two organists play, and they play the largest theater organ in the world, a Wurlitzer. They go through some Christmas music, and then when they're about to finish, all of a sudden, they fold back into the walls, and up out of the pit comes a full orchestra. And they do a medley of Christmas music. And then come the Rockettes. And the Rockettes then do their fabulous routine of the wooden soldiers. And then after that comes Santa Claus. And then after that comes the living nativity. And the living nativity is really the story of the incarnation. And they don't cut any corners. They have donkeys. They have camels. And they have sheep. The living nativity. Is it spectacular? It is spectacular. No question. I was skiing in Colorado. I was on a black slope. Nobody else around me. I was by myself. I was going down that slope way too fast for an old man and lost it. And there were pieces of my equipment shattered all over. They were, I mean, the helmet was there, the the glasses, the goggles, uh, the ski poles. And for a long time, about 100 yards, I did beautifully on one ski. And then I wrecked, really wrecked. And I was there in a hump, and there was one, I looked back up the mountain, there was one other guy coming down. And as he came down the mountain, he stopped and picked up pieces of my equipment and brought it to me. And when he got to me, he said, are you okay? And I said, yes, I'm okay. I'd actually broken a couple of ribs, but I said, yes, I lied. I said, yes, I'm okay. He said, I have one thing to say to you. I thought, that's interesting. He said, spectacular. <laughs> I've asked people this last week, 
When I say spectacular, what do you think of? A lot of people talk about sunsets over the Pacific. Some people talk about that train you take through the Alps that takes you up to the Jungfrau. Some people talk about riding in a hot air balloon in Kenya over the animals and there were the elephants and the giraffes and the lions. And other people talked about sailing into the Bosphorus, that marvelous body of water that separates Europe from Asia. And there is all of Istanbul laid out there. Some people talked about the baby's first word. Others talked about the baby's first step. Spectacular. And friends, you have a seat here at the edge of spectacular because I look out across that amazing valley, 260 square miles out there to the mountains. Amazing. A spectacular setting for a church. And I can't tell you how many times I've stood on the deck of our home that overlooks this and said, Lord, give us wisdom as we try to reach these people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are in a spectacular setting for a spectacular purpose. Linda and I have appreciated the 18 months, the first service I said it was 18 weeks. It's been a lot longer than that, baby, let me tell you. But Linda and I have deeply appreciated the opportunity to be here for 18 months. It has been spectacular. Many of you have welcomed us into your circles of love. We've had the privilege of welcoming confirmation classes, new member classes. We've done baptisms, the Lord's Supper. We've also done some funerals and some weddings. We've had some wonderful experiences. And in one five-day period, I saw the Lakers, the Kings, and the Los Angeles Philharmonic under Gustavo Dudamal at the Disney Music Hall. Now, how many places can you go and get that in five days? I mean, it's amazing, this place. And we've had a wonderful time. We had three glorious services on Christmas Eve, two services at the Hollywood Bowl for Easter. I've enjoyed the opportunity to teach and preach, and I thank you for the trust you've placed in my hands. I want you to know as well, though, that my... Uh, Christianity has been tested on 405. I mean, I've said some really bad things on it. And, and I, I, you're going to have to make the prayer confession a little longer if you're going to get me. But I will tell you this. One of the highlights was doing 36 baptisms in the Pacific last September. I was in a wetsuit. I went and bought a wetsuit. And by the way, it's hanging in your closet because I ain't ever doing that again. But that wetsuit saved me out there. It was cold in the Pacific. And that particular day, I'll never forget that, there must have been a million anchovies right there where we were baptizing because there were a thousand diving pelicans all around us. And here we are trying to baptize people. And you got not, when I, I want to call them porpoises. What do you call those things? Pelicans? No, the <laughs> dolphins is what I'm trying to think. Dolphins were swimming all over the place. And here I am trying to baptize these dear people, you know, and the Trinitarian formula, I'd baptize them, and the waves were about 10 feet high that day. And so I baptized these poor souls, and the wave would throw them up on the beach. And I'm sure they're wondering, what have I got myself into? And I want to say one other thing to you, that uh, your weather out here is just not fair. You realize the rest of this country is sweating, or... They're trying to take care of all the rain they get. And here we are out here. We don't even need wipers, 
I mean, it's amazing part of the world. So we've had a good time being with you, and thank you for that. I want you to know that uh, Linda uh, has uh, 12 CDs out, and uh, one Saturday morning I was minding my own business. Linda wasn't around, and the phone rang, and the phone was always for her. It was never for me, so I answered the phone, and uh, this guy said, is Linda there? And I said, no, I'm sorry she's not, but if you give me your name and number, I'll have her call you. He said, you must be the preacher. Well, when he said that, I knew immediately he'd been to her website, because on the website, she gives me credit for being a preacher. And so he says, you must be the preacher. I said, yep, I'm the preacher. He said, um, well, I want to tell you a story. I said, well, go right ahead. He said, three years ago, I bought a used car. I live in Washington, D.C. I have a 22-mile commute one way. And he said that 22-mile commute I used my used car, and he said it had a CD in it that I couldn't get out. So he said, I have played this same CD every morning and every evening. That CD has seen me through snowstorms, traffic jams, accidents, a tough day, 22 miles each way. And I've played that same CD over and over again. I know every note of that CD. And I said, well, great. He said, well, I just bought a new car, and they got the old CD out of the used car, and guess what? It's Linda McKechnie's hymn works. And he said, I just want to thank her for being with me through all these good and bad times. So there are moments of real thanks. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, because he loved them, he cared for them, he'd been there, he'd nurtured them. And the Apostle Paul would say to you and to me, you need to pay attention to Ephesus because what's going on in Los Angeles isn't a whole lot different from Ephesus. When Paul wrote that, there were probably a minimum of 50,000 people in Ephesus. It had two ports, it was a trade center, it had two amphitheaters which said something about the affluence of the place. And there was the Temple of Artemis. People came from all over the place to go to the Temple of Artemis. It was a big tourist attraction. In addition to that, there's very good evidence that the Gospel of John was written in Ephesus. And if you remember, when Jesus was on the cross, he turned to John and said, take care of my mother. And to his mother, he said, John's going to take care of you. So there's very good evidence in Ephesus that the mother of Jesus, Mary, spent her last days in Ephesus. So when Paul writes to these people, it's out of a heart full of compassion. Were these folks sophisticated? You better believe it. It was a spectacular setting. Even this day when you see it, that's the way you react. And he prays for these people. He essentially does three brief prayers. And we echo those prayers this morning. The first thing he says is, I pray that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit. What he's saying to the likes of the folks in Ephesus and the likes of us is you need fresh resolve. Your Christian faith is not a one-shot deal. You need to have fresh resolve day after day. And he talks about the power of the spirit, not your power, the power of the Holy Spirit that works through the likes of us. We are but conduits. 
And the spirit's power is in Greek, dunamis. Dunamis has to do with dynamite. It has to do with dynamo. So this is not a power that is to be flipped off. It is a power to be reckoned with. And he's saying to these Christians, I want you to stand tall because the Holy Spirit will enable you to do what you ought to do. You will end up doing what the Holy Spirit really wants you to do. And could it be, could it be that our consent is necessary for the Holy Spirit to act transformationally? Could it be that our consent is necessary for the Holy Spirit to act transformationally? I think Paul's implying that here. If you want to be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, he urges that for all of us. I think he waits. I think the Savior waits. I think the Savior waits for our desire. There's no coercion in the Christian faith. It's up to you and to me. We are knowledge, will, and emotions. And that will thing is for real. And then the second prayer that he offers is this. He prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, rooted and grounded in love. He wants us to be incarnational. He wants people to see us and say, you know, what that person did or said was more Christ-like than anything else I've ever seen. We are to be incarnational people. He says we need to be rooted and grounded in love. When I read that, I thought about Muir Woods. Muir Woods is one of my favorite places in California, north of San Francisco, and you know that's the place where all those redwoods have accumulated. And uh, what, what is amazing to me, I, there's a section in there called the Sanctuary. And I remember being in there and the sun shining through those trees, absolutely magnificent. Now I know the Dodge ads run trucks through the redwoods. But the redwoods grow in a, about a 250-mile area in the Pacific Northwest, some of those trees grow to 300 feet. And they've lasted for years and years. And How have they survived fires, insects, fungi, and disease? How have they done it? You never find a redwood by itself. It's always in a clump, if you will. And the redwood's roots go down only so far, and then they radiate outward laterally so that all the roots of all the trees are interwoven. And so when a storm comes, it's the root system that sustains them no matter what. And it's a great image for the body of Christ. You need to stay connected to the body of Christ, that root system. And that's what Paul's saying, rooted and grounded in love. And then um, he comes to uh, the third prayer, and his third prayer is he wants you to have the power to comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth of Christianity and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. When I came to this church, they told me that two-thirds of this congregation, two-thirds are in the entertainment business. And it was Phil Cook who took me aside and he said, you know, they're really not in the entertainment business. I said, what are you talking about? He said, they're in the influence business. He said, the entertainment industry exerts more influence globally than anything else the United States produces. And I hope those of you that are connected to the entertainment industry will hang in there. You need to be incarnational. You need to be catalysts for God's redemptive good 
in this world. So Paul says, I want you to cover the love of Christ because the love of Christ is bigger than any knowledge you might have. First century folks in Ephesus knew a lot about knowledge. There's a library there, Celsus, that had 20,000 scrolls. These people knew a lot about knowledge. But you were knowledge, will, and emotions. You're not just knowledge. And Paul's saying, if you will immerse yourself in the love of Christ, that's greater than all the knowledge that this world has to offer. The fruit of the Spirit, it says in Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you know, if someone has shared some love with you, someone's brought joy your way, someone's shown you some kindness, acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. Emotional deprivation is dangerous stuff. Emotional deprivation is dangerous stuff. And we get so caught up in our own little worlds, our own cocoons, that we don't ever seem to notice what's around us. And there are people who will respond to your affirmation and make a difference in this world. Pat Summit was the women's basketball coach at the University of Tennessee. And uh, you talk about a hero in the world of sports. She's it. Pat Summit, oh, she wrote a book, by the way, called Sum It Up. Cute, right? Sum It Up. Pat Summit, for 38 years, has been the women's basketball coach at the University of Tennessee. Now, this woman has won all kinds of trophies, awards, championships, lots of accolades. She's been nationally recognized. She is amazing. But she said her greatest award is that in 38 years, 100% of her players have graduated. Isn't that a wonderful thing? There are very few coaches in America that can say anything like that. She now has Alzheimer's. She's had to pull back from her coaching duties. And in her book, she said this, God takes some things away to lighten us so we can fly. God takes some things away to lighten us so we can fly. I dare to believe you are going to fly under this man's leadership here at Bel Air. Drew is a gift of God to all of us. The guy is intelligent, he's articulate, he's sensitive, and let me tell you something that is unique about pastors. He listens. And yesterday, the presbytery approved him. So he's legit. I have done countless pastors' conferences. I've organized them. I've spoken at them ad nauseum. And I can tell you this. Pastors talk strategy. And most pastors you know can really talk. Pastors talk strategy, morning, noon, and night. But real pastors talk logistics. Real pastors talk logistics. What do you mean by that? Have you seen the UPS ads? They talk about logistics. Big Brown talks about the logistics of delivering 15 million packages to 220 countries every single day. You have to know something about logistics to pull that off. 
Do you know that Big Brown's trucks don't make left turns? Yeah, it's a waste of time. And so they map them to keep doing right turns. Now there's a political statement in there somewhere, <laughs> but we ain't going there. Most pastors talk strategy, but real pastors talk logistics. How are we going to reach the lost with the good news of the gospel? How are we going to help the lonely find community in the body of Christ? How are we going to help the folks that feel like life is a losing proposition? There is no meaning. And real pastors talk logistics. And this man will talk logistics to you here at Bella. Do you realize if you make 250000 a year, you are in the top 2% in this country? 250000 you're in the top 2%. But if you go to Starbucks and you buy organic groceries and get into the VIP lines at LAX, you're in the top 20%. Now, why would I bother to tell you that? Because the poverty rate in Los Angeles is the greatest of all the major cities in the United States. We have 15 mission partners who are on the cutting edge in terms of sharing the gospel of Christ and trying to help people with their very special needs. And that type of program is worth supporting. Verse 18 Paul says again, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And let me tell you something. Our love of Christ is pretty pathetic. It ebbs and it flows. It's high and it's low. It's hot and it's cold. It's not our love of Christ that sustains us. It's Christ's love for us. That's what sustains us. It's his faithfulness. And I'm convinced that the future of this church is spectacular because of the talent that's here, the creativity that's here, and the dedication to Jesus Christ that I know is here. And you're not alone in this. The Holy Spirit is with you in all of that. Here's my mandate. Dream something big enough that unless God is in it, it is impossible and will fail. How about that? Dream something big enough that unless God is in it, it is impossible and will fail. In the 1500s, the Protestant Reformation started to spread throughout Europe. France was embraced by the Protestant Reformation. There were about two million people that withdrew from the Roman Catholic Church, and they were called Huguenots. And because these people had withdrawn from the Roman Catholic Church, they were viewed as rebels. They were banned from a whole lot of public events. There were roundups, there were massacres. Often Huguenots were taken to the guillotine. Lots of times the women were placed in prison for life. Their children were taken from them and placed in uh, foster homes. Upwards of 500,000 Huguenots left France. Some came even to America. And those that were left, of the two million that were left in France, they worshipped in secret, 
they migrated to the villages towards the top of the mountains and they became familiar with evasion and disguise. These people understood fear but looked it right in the face. They had faced a reign of terror for a hundred years. And the Huguenots were very present in France, but very careful about the public expression of their faith. During World War II, when the Nazis began to take over Europe, and that regime and its influence began to spread, as the Jews fled as refugees into France, it was the Huguenots that stepped up, took them in, and enabled them to cross the border into Switzerland. What I want you to understand is this. It was not the fortunate and the famous who took in the Jews in France. It was the marginal and the damaged. It was not the fortunate, the well-educated folks that took in the Jews in France. It was the marginal and the damaged. There are real limits to what evil and misfortune can accomplish. There are no limits as to what God's grace in Jesus Christ can accomplish. Dream something big enough that unless God is in it, it is impossible and will fail. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for the spectacular good news of your grace in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this spectacular setting, but thank you most of all for the spectacular promise of the power of your spirit in the lives like ours. And enable us, O oh God, to go from this place and be the Christian people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.